invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The back end of that chapter, there is a, a very arresting verse um, in verse 30 that simply says this. It says, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. And sleep here is simply a euphemism for death. Something was afflicting the church in Corinth such that not just a few, but many, it says, were sick and even died. What could that have been? And the thing is, in Corinth, you have a whole list of things to pick from. It could have could have been that incest problem that they were tolerating, or maybe it was that, that issue about um, prostitution, or it, it could have been the meat that they were sacrificing to the idols, or it could have been divorce. And of course, you don't want to forget, it could be that whole business about head coverings. I mean, it is right there in context, ladies, you might want to rethink the whole head covering thing. Um, but as it turns out, It's actually none of those things. It's something entirely different, something that has to do, in fact, with this table. The table that we're going to approach in just a few minutes. It was something about their celebration of it that was costing many of them their health and some of them their lives. And the shocker, the other shocker, I think, in it is that it was God who was doing the killing. If you read the next couple of verses, he says, But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. They were under God's judgment when this thing was happening. They were under God's discipline, and it was for their good. Definitely for the good of of the remainder of the church, their deaths were serving as a warning to the church then, and they're a warning to us. It's a warning to be careful how you come to this table, that it matters a great deal to God. So what was it that happened in Corinth that brought this judgment on the church? And how should that shape our celebration that we're just about to share in together? Let's look through the rest of the passage together after we pray. Okay, let's pray. Father, I honestly think most times we don't have any idea what we are doing when we gather in this place, around this table, in your presence. We so underestimate things that are sacred and holy in our day. And we do that at our own peril. So, God, I ask for the grace to understand and believe and obey today. This, your very word. Make it clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What was going on at this table in Corinth? Back in verse 17, where we'll start today, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Whatever was going on, it wasn't good. 
And it was, matter of fact, it was so destructive that the church was worse off because they gathered to celebrate the Lord's table than if they had just skipped it altogether. In verse 18 and 19, he says, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. To some extent, he says, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So the core of this issue, the centerpiece of it, and don't don't miss this and everything else we're going to ramble through, the church was divided. And that's what brought God's judgment on it. The church was tolerating division. The unity of the body of Christ, it turns out, is to die for. Jesus did, and we just might if we spoil it. Paul's not talking here about legitimate differences that distinguish true followers from false in the gathered church. He's talking about division that ought not, that must not be in the church of Jesus Christ. In verse 20, he says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Their divisions... We're nullifying the supper such that, he says, it was not the Lord's Supper anymore that they were eating. It was just theirs. It was all about them. The divisions, it seems, in in their situation were between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And it may have looked something like this because their celebration, this symbolic celebration was embedded in an actual meal that they shared together as a church. And at that meal, the rich were eating and drinking more than they needed, even to the extent that some may have been getting drunk, while the poor went hungry. And the emphasis here is not on the drunkenness. It's on the hunger. The indictment is not that the rich had so much, but that they would keep it to and lavish it upon themselves in the face of such great need by their brothers and sisters who were right in their midst. Their selfish, me-first kind of attitude was dividing the body and inviting God's judgment. By their selfishness, they were showing that the body mattered less to them than their own luxury. Can you imagine that? It's almost unthinkable, isn't it, that a church would do that? It'd be like a church where some had lost their jobs and couldn't even pay their mortgage and their light bill on time. While other families in the church, at the same time and well aware of their brothers and sisters' great need, were buying bigger houses and newer cars, almost flaunting their wealth. Can you imagine such a thing? It might not be as unimaginable as we hoped. See, the way they conducted their meal, it was humiliating for the poor even to attend. Imagine that you're having a cookout with your small group. I mean, a really nice cookout. We're not talking burgers and brats here. People are bringing lobster 
and those fillet mignon things. <laughs> and a bottle of the good stuff, the really good stuff. This is no seminary gathering, okay? <laughs> At least it better not be. And, and they're carrying on and they're cooking it up and they're eating it. And after, after a little while, after the meal's virtually done, there's another family that comes in. And they're not dressed as nice. And they don't drive as nice. And they bring nothing. Nobody says a word. Nobody shares. Can you imagine how humiliating that would be for a man trying to provide for his family? They wouldn't even want to be there. And by this coldness, by this indifference, by this lack of love, this you got yours and I got mine kind of attitude, the very body of Christ is divided. And in Corinth, they brought that divisiveness to this table, to this amazing symbol of blood-bought unity. So it was no longer the Lord's Supper. It's just theirs. So Paul now instructs them, he reminds them of what the table is supposed to be. Verse 23 says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. This is instruction that comes from Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul's passing on the teaching of Jesus that on the night he was betrayed, it's interesting he calls it the night he was betrayed. He doesn't say it's the night he prayed in the garden or the night that he was arrested or the night that he went to those kangaroo courts and went through all those trials. No, it's the night he was betrayed. See, that's how he wants us to frame this experience of the love of Christ that we're about to take part in. Totally undeserved. It was the night he was betrayed that he would so display the love of God for us. And on that same night of betrayal, Paul says he took bread. Bread represents his body. Unlike the way perhaps some of you have been raised, it does not become his body. It represents his body. Gordon Fee in his quite scholarly commentary on this helps us. He says, it lies quite beyond Jesus' intent and the framework in which he and his disciples lived to imagine that some actual change took place or was intended to take place in the bread itself. The bread does not become something greater. It symbolizes something much, much, much greater. The bread is his body. It says that he gave thanks. And some of you were raised in a tradition where this celebration is called the Eucharist. And Eucharist is just the word that's used here for thanksgiving. This is the thanksgiving. So bread was broken in representation of his body. And it's given to his disciples. And Jesus says, this is for you. It's for you that my body is broken. And that 
That's the language in the New Testament of substitution. A couple chapters later, Paul says, um, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in our place, according to the Scriptures. It is the language of atonement, which is the language of love. In 1 John 4, it says, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. His body broken and given to us for our sins in substitutionary love. And he commanded them to do this as a remembrance of him. This is, this is what it is all about. This is who it's about. It's not about their fancy food or their social standing. They were to do this to remember him. We are to do this in remembrance of him. It's actually, if you could see it, on the front of our communion table, it's emblazoned there. In remembrance of me. It's funny, when, when we first got this table, we had this table made for us, because you can't go to Walmart and buy a communion table. Um, we got it in here, and he was showing it to us, and it was, it's a beautiful piece of uh, carpentry and we were looking at it, and all of a sudden I noticed that there was a problem that they had misspelled remembrance. <laughs> they spelled it remember-ants. It's not spelled that way. It's remembrance. They'd gotten it wrong. And it's almost symbolic because I think so many times we get it wrong. The focus of why we come to this table is not Jesus. It's anything but Jesus. Perhaps the classic example I read of this uh, comes from uh, Mark Driscoll out in his church in Seattle. He's talking to a lady in, her ch- in their church, and he says, so what do you think about when you come to communion? And she said, I watch the lady's shoes. I'm not kidding. He goes on, and he says, she's apparently really into shoes. She'd be like, oh, those are great shoes. Oh, those don't work at all. Oh, those are great shoes. Oh, those shoes are incredible. So she's sitting there at communion, he says, judging shoes on a one to ten scale. No. No. It's not about shoes. It's not about fashion. It's not about what people think of you when you come to the table. We do it in remembrance of him. That's why we do it. We are to do this to remember him, his body broken for us. Paul goes on in the next verse in 25, and he says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This new covenant, this new agreement with God is a new way of relating to God. It's the long-awaited rescue put into place. 
where sins are forgiven and the Spirit of God is given to us and God is known by His people. He is our God and we are His people. That's what Jeremiah prophesied about it long ago, long before, uh, when he wrote about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. His blood, His life's blood, is poured out for sins, not His own, for our sins to wash them away, to free us from their stains. We read earlier what Isaiah said about it. In chapter 53, when he would write about the Messiah, he says, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. All the way at the other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it talks about Jesus this way. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. See, we take the cup in remembrance of him. We worship him for his life's blood shed so that we can be free from our sins. Back in verse 26, Paul then says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death. This table is a proclamation of the good news about Jesus, the gospel. It's what some have called an enacted sermon. We're acting out the good news of the death of Jesus for us. Paul says that we do this until he comes. Because he is a risen Savior, we do this action, remembering his death, until he's going to come again. And that brings two very important things to mind. One, he is risen. The resurrection is embedded in this, in this celebration at that point. And two, he has promised to return. He's coming back one day. We take this celebration in memorial until he returns, and then we will celebrate the feast with him in person. N.T. Wright says that at this table, in this present moment, is when past and future come together. Our proclamation of his past death meets our yet future hope of his return, and then he is with us in the present as the host of this table. He invites us to commune with him. And so in verse 27, then it says, Therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. So if you partake of this meal in an unworthy manner, you are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, Paul says. So what is an unworthy manner? What does it mean? How should we go about examining ourselves to prepare for this table? 
Let me start with a good description of what it is not. And this again comes from Gordon Fee. He says, The very table that is God's reminder and therefore His repeated gift of grace, the table where we affirm again who and whose we are, has been allowed to become a table of condemnation for the very people who most truly need the assurance of acceptance that this table affords. The sinful, the weak, the weary. One does not have to get rid of the sin in one's life in order to partake. Here by faith, one may once again receive the assurance that Christ receives sinners. Sinners are welcome at this table. Great sinners, repeated sinners, struggling sinners, tired sinners, discouraged sinners, expert sinners, they're all welcome at this table. There is a kind of sinner that's not welcome at this table. And that is an unrepentant sinner. If you would hold to your sin and not be willing to forsake it for the love of Christ shown here, then you must first choose What do you love more, your sin or your Savior? If you will forsake your sin for the love of your Savior, then then come join the rest of us sinners at the table. The table is for sinners. So don't, don't confuse it. To partake in a worthy manner is not the same as being worthy. None of us are ever worthy of an invitation to this table. Nobody deserves to be invited to Jesus' table. To partake in an unworthy manner, as Paul's talking about it here, is to come and declare the love of God in these powerful symbols, the bread and the cup, and at the same time deny that love to a brother or sister that's in this room. That's an unworthy manner. See, in Paul's day, their discrimination was rooted in socioeconomic factors. The haves were discriminating against the haves-nots. And it can happen today. We can look down on those who are struggling economically. They have less than us. Now, some churches, that's really obvious. We're not exactly uh, fashionistas here at North Wake. Um, But there's a difference between casual and poor. And if you're looking, you can pick up on it. And that can affect you. That can cause you to turn away from someone or avoid someone. It can take other shapes. We are, as a church, richly blessed by our southern heritage. We are not blessed by that in matters of race. Is there someone here that you would not invite to your dinner table because of their race? Are there some children that will not get invited to your home because of their race? Are there homes you would not allow your children to go to because of their race? 
politics unbelievably could, can do this. Um, is it not true that what we have in Christ actually trumps the differences between Obama and Palin? Shouldn't it? Mustn't it? How silly is our faith if it does not gloriously overwhelm those kinds of differences? What kind of love is that? It's not His supper if those things divide us. It's just ours. You get the feeling that He's not even present. And this doesn't have to be so categorical. Is there someone here that you are estranged from? Someone who has wronged you or spoken badly of you or ignored you? So now you return the favor and you simply don't speak. You avoid them. To partake of the table in an unworthy manner is to come to the table to receive the love and grace of Christ and fail to recognize His body all around you. The very body of Christ right here in this room. It's to, it's to receive the undeserved love of Christ and then withhold it from one who needs to receive it from you. It's to be like that servant in Jesus' parable. You remember that story? This servant that's in Matthew 18 gets this mountain of forgiveness from their master and turns right around and goes out and finds somebody who owes them a paltry sum by comparison and refuses to forgive them that debt and throws them in prison. The master calls that servant into him, and he says this. He says, master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours just because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This, Jesus says, is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. See, a violation of this table is really just a violation of love. It's a refusal to share the love of Christ with someone who is different than you or someone who has wronged you. One of the central meanings of the symbols on this table is the unity of the body of Christ. Jeff taught on this a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says there is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because, he says, there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So that... um, The loaf represents principally his physical body, but it also represents that we are one body. So in failing to recognize his body, that can cut a couple of different ways. It can mean failing to recognize his sacrifice for us. It can also mean failing to recognize his body in the people around the room and failing to love them as Christ. See, it is a failure to love that divides us. When we are 
divided, when we let something other than love rule, there at this table then is this great collision of symbols, this great contradiction of the love of Christ that's represented so powerfully in the bread and the cup. If you take today of this bread and this cup, and you will not speak to your brother or sister who is in this room, or maybe it's your husband or your wife, or it could be your parents. If you come to this table without confessing that sin and turning from it, then you profane these symbols. You sin against the very blood and body of Christ. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's just yours. Now again, you will never be worthy to approach this table. You'll never have a good enough week to say, yeah, I deserve this. Most of us can't even put together a good enough morning to say that. But you can come in a worthy manner. You can humbly turn from your selfishness and sin and be willing to love any and all who are here in the name of Christ. That's that's worthy. Paul finishes this way. He says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give you further directions. Again, God was disciplining the church for their good, for their protection, to purge them of the sin. And he urges them, and he is urging us, to eat this meal together as one, as God's people. See, a meal together in their day was a powerful symbol of fellowship and oneness. And if you think about it, it still is in ours too. To invite somebody over to dinner is to invite them into friendship with you. It's just what it means. And this table must mean that too. It must mean a willingness to love as Christ our brothers and sisters who are in this room. To be the church, we must be one. We must love one another as Christ has loved us. So, let's ready ourselves by examining ourselves for the table. Would you bow with me? As we prepare for the table, let's ask ourselves, do I believe in this Jesus and his death for me? For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Do you believe that? Am I estranged from anyone here or maybe someone not here? Someone I am unwilling to forgive. Someone I need to seek forgiveness from but won't. Dear friends, let us love one another.
for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Bear with each other and forgive each other whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Am I clinging to a sin and will not lay it down? Will not forsake it for the love of my Savior? Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness.